to I run an intensive care follow-up clinic along with colleagues in the hospital and I speak you know all the time to people who've got through ICU we felt really good about that we you know people have clapped them out and so on and they're having a really really tough time financially emotionally physically all the rest Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday, 26 January 2021. As we balance hope with the grim realities of continuing lockdown, the UK becoming officially the worst performing country in terms of COVID deaths per head of population, and the number of people in hospital still higher than at any point in the pandemic. More than half a million people have, however, been vaccinated in the UK, a success story, but one not without controversy as debate continues over the UK's decision to delay the second dose, especially among frontline healthcare workers. So we have lots to discuss and with me today on the line are Matt Morgan. Say hi, Matt. Hi, I'm an intensive care consultant based in Cardiff. Partha Carr. Hi there, I'm a diabetes specialist, a consultant uh, from Portsmouth. And Helen Salisbury. Hello, I'm a GP in Oxford. So let me ask each of you, how has your week been? Matt, how are you doing? Well, I've actually taken the plunge and taken a bit of time off. It was my birthday this week. And so uh, I've tried to switch off and only watch TV programmes about fictional things rather than factual things. It hasn't gone terribly well. I've strayed back into fact a few times but otherwise I'm, I'm feeling marginally uh, refreshed ready for my night shifts this Wednesday. Very good happy birthday Matt we won't ask you which which birthday. <laughs> Partha. Uh, yeah it's been actually uh, so I think since we last spoke the last week I'd been a lot on the wards um, good to see some numbers starting to drop in our hospital in Portsmouth which has been much more reassuring still a lot of patients everywhere Weekend was mostly spent, uh, similar to what Matt said, I watched Lupin on Netflix, which was really good and very, you know, well, there was no mention of COVID. That was a great start. So that was quite good fun. So, yeah. Thanks, Bartha. Helen? Yes, um, I guess one of the things that's dominated this week for me is just frustration because we could be doing so much more on the vaccination front, but we don't have the vaccines. So that's kind of overriding um, feeling for me. But I also try and switch off and we had the most glorious snow um, that appeared on Sunday morning and went for a magical walk through woodlands and over fields. Um, and that's very restorative. Fantastic. And for my part, I have, to my slight horror, started the Couch to 5K. So um, I have my children laughing because it's eight minutes running and then a day off, which is pretty good first week. Um, but anyway, good to see you all. Uh, Matt, tell us a bit about um, life on intensive care. We've seen you know, a lot of the media coverage, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty relentless. And, um, you know, obviously the sickest people and therefore many of them not making it. Um, what, where are things from your side? Well, the, the data is very clear and we are at the point where there's the most people in intensive care units since the start of the pandemic, over 4,000 in the UK. That does hide a lot of regional variation and some units are really, really struggling. Some units 
struggling a little less, but still struggling nevertheless. And as we've said recurrently, this is a toll not just on those who work in intensive care, actually the nursing staff and others, but this is a toll on the whole hospital system. Uh, intensive care units are now expanding outside of their footprints. People from medicine, geriatrics, respiratory are doing a huge amount of support of critically ill people, although they aren't physically based in the ICU. And we're having a huge amount of help from staff coming in to the unit to help. Where I work, we've got paediatric nurses, we've got theatre staff, we've got uh, dental uh, professionals, we've got medical students all helping out in different ways, whether it's turning people onto their tummy, proning them, which is a huge task in itself, actually, uh, or whether it's doing other important nursing care. So, yeah, it's really tough, and the mortality rates are high. You know, probably around one in two people who are on ventilators with COVID will die. Probably more than that, actually, when the data finally comes in, because we've got a lot of people who are still in intensive care, so we haven't got outcome data for that second wave. And that takes a huge moral toll on staff. You know, the, the phrase moral injury has been used. I like the phrase those that we carry. And there's people from the past, you know, I, I, I think about not infrequently who have died or family members. And I think that's one of the things that we'll carry out to this pandemic with us. There'll be those that we carry on our backs, whether it's families, patients or, or other staff members. Yes, I'm so sorry to hear that. It must be, it must be a, an extraordinary experience for all of you, and obviously for the for the patients and families themselves. Terrible. Are, are relatives allowed in now? Is it a different thing, or is it still that these people are having to only see their relatives through through uh, iPads? So, certainly, we do allow compassionate visits, and the definition of that does depend on where you work. Locally, where I work, end of life care, absolutely, we do our very best to get patients and families in. Uh, that's something that we, we've we been doing more and more as much as we can. And that includes young family members sometimes. We've had children come and see uh, their, their parents, for example. Uh, and compassion, it doesn't only extend to end of life care. You know, there are other situations where compassionate visiting is allowed, but you know, there are risks to that. And we do have to go through this process of explaining that to the people who come in, who are often pretty upset. You know, they don't want to read a five-page leaflet about what risks they're going to go through. They just want to see their mum, for example. Um, but yes, that, that is possible, although we do still use phones and iPads to an extent when uh, we aren't quite at that stage. And, and tell us about supplies, supplies of the, of, the, of the things you need to care for patients. Well, there was a big issue in wave one with supplies of certain items and drugs. The most notable ones were probably the fluid used in haemophilters uh, for kidney dialysis. That fluid itself, which is big and bulky, we were going through a lot of because a lot of people had acute kidney injury, for example. In the second wave, there's been a lot more talk about oxygen supply, actually. And you know, oxygen is one of those substances that we often don't think about as a drug. Actually, it was nearly 250 years ago that Joseph Priestley uh, found, discovered oxygen. He also invented carbonated water, so we've got him to thank for some of the fizzy drinks that keep us going uh, through the pandemic. And if people want to read 
actually about oxygen. Nick Lane's book, Oxygen, is, is fantastic and highly recommended. Um, and the, the places that produce oxygen, that delivery to the hospital isn't the issue. A lot of people worry about the absolute amount of oxygen. Oxygen is stored in a big, what's called vacuum insulated evaporator in hospitals, a big white tank with ice normally around the bottom of it because it's stored at uh, around minus 150 degrees. So it's liquid oxygen and it's stored at about 10 atmospheres of pressure. So very high pressure liquid oxygen. And the absolute amount of it normally is okay. But just like when you have a shower, if you want a powerful shower, you don't just need the water to come into your house. You need it to flow through your pipes. You need it to flow through your pipes under pressure and you need those pipes to be wide enough for that pressure to be transmitted. And when we have a huge amount of people in hospital on oxygen forms which take a lot of flow, for example, CPAP takes about 30 litres a minute of flow. High flow nasal oxygen can take up to 60 litres of oxygen flow per minute, whilst the ventilator only takes a few litres because it's a closed system. But that can really get to the maximum amount of flow rate through the hospital system. And that's what the problem is. It's flow rate. And the problem with flow rate is if the flow rate is very high and the pressure gets low as a result, there's an automatic alarm which can turn oxygen off because it thinks there's a leak, for example. And so that's been one of the big problems. There are some solutions. Just like if you have a weak shower in your house, you can get a bigger boiler with more pressure. And some hospitals have been buying extra VIEs, for example, these vacuum insulated uh, cylinders. You can make the pipe work better and wider, but that takes a lot of doing and that takes a lot of engineering. And what some hospitals have been doing is employing hospital marshals instead to go around calculating flow rates from those various devices and therefore trying to avoid getting to the point of the pressure drop in and these alarms happening for example but that's just an extra pressure and worry that you don't want you know you want to look after critically ill people not worry about should i turn the oxygen up from from 10 liters to 20 liters for example thanks matt i have a sort of vision of, of individual oxygen cylinders like people who who use um uh, oxygen at home but that's obviously a rather smaller smaller scale operation um I wanted to just ask people about the latest ONS data that's come through, um, you know, finding who is most at risk of, of contracting and, and dying from COVID. Partha, I know you've been looking at this and, and have had some worries about what they're not collecting, but perhaps you could first of all tell us the headlines of, of what they have found. So I think two things have jumped out as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I think the first one being that if you look at the population spread, the impact on healthcare workers is, I mean, you look at the men working in elementary occupations, etc. There's clearly an impact on if you work in a healthcare setting, which is quite big. And, you know, then you've got other sectors of hospitality, care workers, nurses in particular, while interestingly, and I know this is a very emotive debate going on, teachers seem to be at lesser risk according to the ONS data. So I suspect that will open up further debates about schools, etc., etc., going along. But from my point of view, I think, as I've said from day one when the vaccine prioritization came out, I think these are the types of data you need. You know, when you're talking about who should come first, 
And I understand, and I fully understand the way they've gone for the age criteria, but it's not just about that. There are certain people who will have the possibility that they can be protected and shielded till more vaccines come along and the one dose strategy. And there'll be certain groups who need further protection, not just for themselves, but also not to spread it on. And I think that's where it's quite important. And I've always felt that healthcare workers should, should have been prioritized. I think a lot of it was also about the factor of morale. It just correlates with the whole sickness rates we've got. So I think the awareness data showcases that about the occupational side of things. And I think when JCVI make their decision, these are the type of things you would have hoped they'd taken into account. And Partha, I gather you've been very concerned about the lack of collection of data about ethnic origin in relation to who's been getting the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I think I've 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 been quite surprised, I must say. You know, we spent, you know, the pandemic came along, data sets came along, which showed what caused more risk, etc. We talked about age control, etc. And one of the big things was deprivation. One of the other big things was ethnicity. Then Public Health England, led by Kevin Fenton, told, talked about the role of ethnicity and what we need to do to try and go forward. And then a vaccination program lands and there's absolutely zero collection of ethnicity data which I just don't understand. You know, I, I'm, you know, I've, I've been quite vocal about it on social media and lots of public health experts this morning have come and said, oh, we've been working a lot behind the scenes. And I was like, well, that's lovely, but it's not actually, trans, you know, translocated to anything. We should be there at the first stop. And today, as I understand, NHS England have said that, right, we're going to collect the data. And quite understandably, lots of primary care physicians now are going to say, well, that's another, another added work, which is why we should have done it right from the beginning. Can I can I butt in here? Because I actually had a presentation yesterday from somebody who does lot does lots of clever software stuff in primary care, and they indeed have built that, and it's on our computer a search that looks at who's had <clears throat> who's had the vaccine according to ethnicity, and you can just play it and run it and that's there so it is happening and we have started certainly in our region looking at who's getting the vaccine according to ethnicity what what are you finding about the prioritization of vaccines i mean at the moment as far as we are aware the um, prioritization is happening entirely according to age although it's not always clear exactly what's happening and i'm still um, not clear why supply is going to mass vaccination hubs rather than to GPs who can call people in exactly according to the priorities. I have a particular concern, though, about age and deprivation, because there are areas of certainly the city where I live where actually the average age of, of, of death is under 80. They're very poor areas of the city. Um, high density populations and very high COVID rates. But because actually not very many people living there get to 80, that those groups are less likely to get their, their vaccines. So I know it would be difficult to have an algorithm that sort of accounted for this, but I'm sure it would be possible to do something and not to deprive. So it seems that these particular areas may get a double whammy because they don't get to 80, they don't get the vaccine. <laughs> or they get the vaccine last. I think um, at this point in the in the discussion, we normally have a sort of moment for us all to vent about um, the the appalling outcomes, if you like, in the UK. And, and we are now officially the worst country um, per, for death per head of population, um, which is a pretty shocking thing to find. Um, I mean, we know that lots of countries in Europe are also struggling, so we shouldn't put set this out of context. 
Um, I, I wonder your views, each of you, about this. And um, you know, do we do we think the the, the the government is being challenged too much or not enough by, for example, journalists about these outcomes and, uh, and, and whether there's a plan, what is the plan, what's happened to track and trace, uh, what would you reset if you could about the government's approach um, so far, since we're far from out of the woods. Partha, what, what's your feeling about this? So I think, you know, it's, I mean, today, I think the news has just come out that we have, as per, we just topped or just about to top 100,000 deaths. You know, we were at a point, we all remember Patrick Valens saying that 20,000 would be a, you know, a reasonable outcome, so to speak, at the end of this. And 100,000, I mean, that is just a mind-boggling number. I mean, it is... And you know what? It, it genuinely makes me feel uh, really sad and hurt and frustrated because um, you always believe that could you have done more? Could you personally have intervened in, you know, and in there from a personal perspective, you know, I look after or one of the national leads for diabetes in that 100,000 people. I suspect there'll be a significant number of people who have diabetes who have died before their times. And I can't see anybody who's really come out of this looking good, apart from probably, I would say, primary care, whose vaccination work has been absolutely astounding. And I will make no two bones about it that we should have given test and trace to them. You know, you, you know, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We do this in diabetes. You want a population-based intervention, you give it to primary care. We have done it in diabetes for years and I've had good outcomes. And... The other people I suspect would be hospitals working together, as Matt will say. It's been a phenomenal effort, which I don't think I, and I hope never to see again in my life of how people are bonded together, irrespective. So that's been just amazing to see, you know, all the things we discuss about you know, interdepartmental and specialty fights and all that sort of egos didn't exist, which is brilliant. But I can't see how things like, for example, you know, public health and others will come out of this looking good or government. And I know public health England will say that, you know, we, we were bound by X and Y. But, you know, if the marker of outcome of a country is death, we have done really poorly. Is it too late, Helen, to put test and trace into primary care? Ah, oh, I don't think so. I mean, Parth was just talking about mind boggling numbers. I think one of the most mind boggling numbers is the 12 billion, which I think has so far been um, spent on test and trace. Um, if we can put that in perspective, that's um, about 10,000 pounds every day uh, since the big end of the Bronze Age. Um, it's also about 10% of the NHS budget. Um, and if we look across, if we could have the common sense um, to look east and see that Korea, for example, spent 0.5% of its health budget um, on their control systems. Uh, and they got something that worked, but they went in really, really strictly. They weren't afraid to, and some would say, be authoritarian, but some would say just to be sensible and take the thing seriously and not be afraid of being unpopular. So they said, right, we've got to close the border. We've got to, we've got to quarantine everybody who comes in. When you arrive, you've got to go to that hotel and stay there until we know you're not spreading it. I mean, the, I, I gather a year on, we're starting to talk about closing the borders. It, it's 
it it would be comedy if it wasn't tragedy, but it is a tragedy. Um, and yes, the, we I hear again and again stories all the time about how um, the test, track and trace system doesn't work. And to a certain extent, it's kind of, well, with these numbers, how could it possibly work? But it could have worked earlier, but it needed so much more intelligence in every sense of that word um, in terms of people who knew how to do the job, which are our public health colleagues, and information about people, where do they live, who lives in this family, who else is in that house. And actually a lot of that data is held in, in primary care records if we'd work together. The, the other thing that is really, really, two more things to make it work. One is trust. And I think there's not been a huge amount of public trust of the track and trace um, and, and with trust comes um, collaboration and cooperation with what you're being asked to do. If you don't quite trust the people who are asking you to do things, you may not do them. Um, and the other is the sheer economic support. Um, when you hear in other countries, um, people are who have to self-isolate are being put up in hotels um, if they can't self-isolate at home. We haven't done anything like that. We've heard again and again how people who've been applying for this measly £500, most of them are getting told, no, you don't qualify. Um, it's really not surprising that it's not worked. Yeah, I, I, I will stop there, but I could go on and you can hear how frustrated I am in my voice because we had an opportunity and just again and again and again, it was blown. I think that we all share that frustration. Uh, and, and Matt, I, I mean, you at the sort of sharp end, you know, the, 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 the last place of last resort, it's sort of become in intensive care. And, um, you know, when we talk about protecting the NHS, it's, it seems to be at its most precious, that intensive care capacity. Um, do you feel that intensive care doctors are, you know, would they be the ones who government might listen to most to say, look, something's got to happen different at the at the public health and the community end if we're not going to, you know, uh, all, all, all fall apart at the, at, the, at the sharp end? Well, intensive care should be the least important bit of this story. You know, the best way to survive intensive care is not to go to intensive care. You know, we don't want to be involved in any way, in, in, in many ways, because that shows that things have already got too late. And, of course, it's not just deaths. You know, that awful figure of 100,000 hides all of those people who have survived, who are now surviving with the uh, ongoing challenges of survival post-COVID. You know, I'd run an intensive care follow-up clinic along with colleagues in the hospital, and I speak you know, all the time to people who've got through ICU. We felt really good about that. We, you know, People have clapped them out and so on. And they are having a really, really tough time financially, emotionally, physically, all the rest. I guess what I would say, I'm not a huge fan of league tables of badness between countries, just because it's, I don't really know what it means. And the truth is that we won't really know how different places have done probably for five ten years possibly more when we've aggregated you know the cancer rates the mental health rates the the financial issues it's such a complex issue i think it's probably been rather than an aggregation of marginal gains which is what the british cyclist team did so well we've had an aggregation of marginal losses there's not one 
bad thing. It's lots of small bad things together. And you can't fix this when the seas are rough. You know, this is historical problems. You know, we've had the lowest number of intensive care beds in Europe for a decade or more. You can't then just build a bed and build a nurse. You know, it's historic problems that you can't fix overnight. I guess in terms of highlights, just two things to highlight. First of all, actually hospital managers to some extent haven't been spoken about a great deal, but they've had a huge burden of change in service, change in configuration, supporting staff. And especially those at a departmental level, I think they've worked really hard and often don't get thanked for that, in fact. And science, uh, in terms of British science, uh, has been a huge success story, whether that's the recovery trial, the remap cap trial in ICU, whether it's the vaccination story, and also data coming out of the UK. You know, we've got ICNARC here, which is now being used globally to look at intensive care survival. And again, that's all thanks to history. You know, we've had organisations like Welcome, we've had the NHIR, we've had investment in science and academia. Um, don't don't lose that. <laughs> you know, when we go into austerity, if that happens, don't lose the things that we've done well, because uh, that may be an easy thing to steal from, but that would be an utter disaster. Thinking about the future, as you say, I think it's very wise of you, Matt, saying, you know, frustrated there we are. These are things that we're having to work with uh, and, and, and those historical um, wounds, if you like, to our public health and, and, and national health service can't be fixed overnight. Um, but thinking then for, for, for future pandemics, uh, one of the things that's come up has been how, how quickly or, or, or slowly, as it turns out, uh, retired doctors have been able to return to the fray when when the need arose, and uh, this idea that perhaps we need a kind of reservists where people would would be on you know signed up and ready and maintain a certain level of competency and training so that they can be pulled back in more quickly for things like um, you know redeployment in hospital or, or even just vaccinating. Um, I've got friends who've had to go right back to the beginning and learn how you know show that they know how to draw fluid into a syringe and know how to vaccinate a plastic arm you know I mean these are things that just seem so pointless when 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 the need is so great um what do you think Matt about the idea of some uh, a sort of GMC registered set of reservists yeah I think that you know that's one of the strategies of course the thing we have been struggling with more than doctors actually is is nursing staff and with nursing bursaries having gone away, uh, the change into nursing degrees and various other changes, you know, I think that's probably a more pressing concern in terms of nursing staff and infrastructure, you know, hospital and secondary care infrastructure. Uh, yes, doctors are important and the red tape and paperwork that Helen and others will know better than I sounds you know, ridiculous for what is uh, an intervention which is hugely impactful and relatively safe with a you know with a small amount of safety training especially when you've got years of experience under your belt um, but actually delivery of of healthcare isn't of course just doctors it's all together and perhaps what this needs are institutions like the GMC the NMC and allied health professionals and hospital manager organizations to work together we talk about MDT working, and yet they're entirely separate organisations who 
it appears don't talk to each other a huge amount so if one thing could come out of it perhaps we need MDT working in governance as well as in in hospital floors. Arthur. Um, so I think you know what have we lacked uh, I'll tell you from a granular basis we have lacked people with general medicine knowledge really have we've been scrambling Right. Um, you know, and it's fantastic to see our dermatology colleagues join in, but they haven't done general medicine for 26 years. Right. And it's unfair on them to be asking to see people who are actually quite sick. So we have spread really thin our base. And I cannot emphasize, and this is what we're trying to do in Portland, any new appointment who has done general medicine training, please give them at least a couple of sessions in general medicine. I'm not asking them full job plan to be general medicine, a couple of sessions. But it is really tough in these times to cover wards because you saw that's one thing I would say. And the other thing, if you had to pick one, you we really need to bolster public health properly. You know, and I can understand the angst of public health colleagues when they're saying, you know, we have been hamstrung, tied in. We are a country, if we if we are we're a country with, you know, higher age groups and you know all that and the higher obesity rates, et cetera. That, well, that's where public health comes in. You know, if you want to protect a population. So I think those would be my two big areas. As a population, public health England, and as a, the more of the generalist role, and I know we have said this, and David Oliver says it so many times, and everybody does, but these are the times when you see the lack of them on the wards. And sometimes you stand there going like, do you know what, if I could, this is, I would rather get some general practice colleagues out here in the hospital because they will know far more about the patients, how to look after them rather than my dermatology colleague trying to do it, which is unfair on him. But, you know, and that's where we are at. You know, there's very few generalists in the system. And that's been a big learning point of this, I would say. I should say that there are other specialties who don't have general medical. <laughs> Other specialties are available. Um, I, I think I would be pretty scared to wander onto one of those wards because it's a long time since I've been on an acute medical ward. But Partha touches on something that's really, really important that, um, and it applies across medicine whether or not you're in a pandemic, that the really dramatic stuff and the people that see, the things that people see is really exciting and life-saving are the um the intensive care or the dramatic cancer surgery um but actually the people who do most of the saving of lives are doing something that looks terribly unexciting because they're planning vaccination programs um, you know, it's actually it's the public health people who are making most difference because they're doing prevention. Um, and you can kind of come up that chain and you can get to the, the GP who's trying to run their diabetes recall and make sure that everybody's been to their eye screening and, you know, and has their sugar controlled to a reasonable level. And one is doing things that don't look as if you're saving lives or doing anything very dramatic. But you do that, in doing that, you are preventing some deaths. You don't know which ones, but some. Um, and, and I just feel for, I really feel for my public health colleagues because they've had such a dreadful time this and they could have done so much more um, if they had not been so comprehensively, um, I was going to say something rude then, um, uh, had not been so negatively affected by the cuts that happened in austerity. Um, 
and and the downgrading really of of public health and now it's just happened again who knows what system will be dreamt up by um the good baroness of talk talk i think one of the things at this point 10 whatever 10 months in now 10 nearly 11 months in i think one of the things and this is a debate i was having separately was about the importance of people also speaking out and i was having this debate with a lot of public health colleagues because they said you know how hamstrung they've been and I think, you know, I spoke about the ethnicity data not being from the beginning and the people said, you know, we've been fighting behind the scenes, etc. And I said, well, you need to speak out. If you don't speak out at 10 months with so many deaths around, when do you speak out? And I've said that. I've been very public about a few things. You don't need to speak out and be disrespectful to people, but you can speak out and say, we don't think it's right. So I would encourage all my colleagues and you know primary care being quite good at being that being quite vocal where things are not right but i think public health england i think as i completely echo helen's point and as i've said they need more support they could have done far more but if they are if their hands are tied they need to speak out they need to now you know come out and say we could have done better if we had x y and z and i think that's what i would encourage for the future you know speaking out can be done without being disrespectful or completely you know throwing a firebomb in the system. You can do so in a respectful way, but still raise your voice. And just on that, um, perhaps each of you could then, I mean, you're all, as am I, in privileged positions, um, partly because of your, already your profile, but, you know, you're senior in your roles and well-respected. And but, but for many people, they may not feel they're quite in that position of strength to speak out. And I know certainly people employed by Public Health England feel that they are not able to do that because they're contractually required not to. But perhaps, I mean, Matt, what do you feel about that speaking out? I think I, I agree with Parth that it's crucially important, but it's easy enough for me to say that. That's my job. Yeah, it, it can be hard. It can be stressful. And if I'm honest, a lot of the stress from this pandemic hasn't just been patients and families. It's been dealing with things that may have been said in the media or on social media and criticism from that or criticism from the public. And that's that's stressful, actually. It's something we're not trained to deal with either. There is a quote I often think about and related to Partha's point from, uh, again, somebody in the Aust- Australian army, actually. It's another slightly army analogy, which is the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And I think flipping it that way, thinking that you know, sometimes not speaking out means that you're accepting of that is a different way to think about things. And and for me, that's an impactful way. And if, if that gets me, and if I think about that, that's probably the time that uh, I then do say something, for example. I think that GPs are in a particularly fortunate position uh, through strange accident, and it's not necessarily what how one would design it from scratch, but GPs are independent contractors. So I suppose at the end of the line, somebody could say, no, you haven't got your contract anymore. But that's really quite a difficult thing to do because you're then taking away a service from um, from a lot of patients. Uh, but I'm not employed. I can say really the things that I think I need to say um, and really nobody can stop me. And I do feel that GPs have a particular ability and therefore duty to talk about what's going on and to say when things aren't happening as they should be. I, I mean, one does have to be careful and make sure that one is in full possession of the facts or talk about which things you don't know and wish you did know before you 
criticise. Um, and I sometimes wonder whether I am too quick to um, to criticise. But I do know that there are people who lack the confidence or the energy or just see too many obstacles ahead and think, no, I know it's not right, but I just haven't got the energy. And, and I feel for them too. So, Partha, just picking up on your comment about speaking out, what, uh, what, would, what would be the roots for someone, uh, you know, within a hospital, within a service, and then more broadly out to the wider world? So I think you absolutely make the point, you know, we're in a position where we are, but I wasn't like in this position like five years ago or seven years ago, neither were, you know, we got, we got here and I don't think, and at least I can speak for myself, I mean, I'd be very surprised with you if you were a quite shrinking violet in your younger days either. So I think when you speak out, you always speak out. I think you learn along the way. And I will say to Matt's point, it, it is not easy to do. You need allies. I think sometimes it's about probably aligning with some other somebody who's more outspoken. You can align with them rather than front loading it yourself if you're really worried about the impact. So you have that cover, so to speak, if somebody is very influential and they're saying that you can go and join them, you know, agree with them. But I think the main thing is speaking out. I think the mistake that a lot of people make, and I've done that myself in my younger days, is that you speak out. And I think if you do it without the necessary respect, that's where it falls down, because then it becomes a very, you know, ad hominem debate. Now, I think if you're worried about the system not being the, doing the right thing, I genuinely believe if at the end of it, in the core of it, you are improving patient care. Even the detractors realize that. And there will be a degree of grudging sort of, okay, fair enough, I can see why he's raising, but he shouldn't have raised it in that way, would be the debate, rather than it's completely the wrong thing to do. So my advice to people is do speak up. You can, you can follow others who do so quite publicly, or you can ask for help. You know, there's so many ways of us reaching out to people like DMs and emails and just saying this is a trouble I'm having. And I get about issues of color and stuff. I pretty much get regular emails and contacts and give me some advice and stuff and I try and help where possible. So that would be my tip. And then just picking up on the sort of broader speaking out this point about why you know we're all frustrated and about the about the poor outcomes that we're seeing in the UK accepting the fact that other countries are also struggling um has the medical profession been too or the public health profession have we been just too accepting too busy to uh, has that voice come out enough do you think um matt what do you feel have we have we made enough noise as a collective i don't know is is the truth i think probably for some issues I think yes. I think there's been meaningful change as a result. Uh, for example, PPE perhaps early on, uh, and for some issues, pr- probably not. You know, hearing today that an island is deciding to close its borders uh, for the first time after a hundred thousand deaths is is bizarre. And when you read that in the history books, uh, you know, one of the biggest nations of islands doing that, that would probably feel odd. Uh, and I think it's partially because where does that fit in the medical profession? Should that be the ICU doctors talking about that? Should it be the medical doctors? Should it be public health? Should it be virology? It, it's those hard corner cases, I think, perhaps where we haven't been as vocal, almost because it felt that perhaps it wasn't us that needed to be vocal. And the truth was it, it should have been perhaps all of us rather than us individually. There's a question about whether our 
media have done enough to raise the questions. Healthcare professionals have mostly tried to do the job they've been asked to do, whether it's an ITU or in primary care and whoever. I think our job has been to try and look after the person in front of us as much as we can and raise as much as issues as we can in our own time. Um, but that's where journalism comes in, I suspect, holding people to account and raising the questions. That would be my way of looking at it. Helen. I think the other thing is that doctors didn't necessarily speak with a united voice. Certainly, there were stages in this pandemic when there were suddenly people with medical qualifications who were suggesting that um, it's really not as bad as we think, it's really not so serious, uh, lockdowns aren't necessarily a good idea. It's quite hard to think back, but it's only a few months ago that um, some people were, were, were debating how serious this is, th this is. So I think there have been doctors who've been trying all along to say, whoa, whoa, please, please listen. It's, it's all going horribly wrong and we need to do something different. But because we weren't all in unity, which I, I'm not quite sure how we'd ever would be all in unity, there are questions about which voices were amplified, but I don't think it's because they weren't raised. My thanks to Helen Salisbury, Matt Morgan and Partha Carr. Do let us know via social media if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. And do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Goodbye, stay safe and thanks for listening. <laughs>